House of Tales by Oka. Hi, I'm Rachel Koo. This episode of Oka's House of Tales podcast is in support of Women's Aid, the UK charity working to end domestic abuse against women and children. Both Oka and I are passionate supporters of Women's Aid, and I'm honoured to be an ambassador for the charity. OCA launched its own charitable partnership with Women's Aid earlier this year to support its mission to create a future where survivors feel safe in their homes and domestic abuse is not tolerated. As a business founded by three female friends, OCA is built on the belief that home should be a sanctuary, a safe space reserved for precious moments with loved ones. For each listen of this episode of House of Tales, OCA will donate £1 to Women's Aid So please enjoy, encourage your friends and family to listen, and together, let's raise as much money as possible for this vital charity. To find out more, visit ochre.com slash charity. Home doesn't have to be a particular place. It's a feeling. I think it's a feeling, and it's that just feeling of utter relaxation, and you can be yourself. You know, for ladies, it's like taking your bra off at the end of the day. (laughs) You just come home and you go. That's food writer and broadcaster Rachel Koo. 15 years ago, in search of adventure in her life, she quit her job in London to take a three-month patisserie course at Le Cordon Bleu. While living in France, she famously opened a small restaurant, preparing and serving food from her tiny Paris flat, a space which could only be described as cosy, able to accommodate just two diners at a time. That experience would go on to influence her first bestseller cookbook and BBC TV series, The Little Paris Kitchen, Cooking with Rachel Koo. She briefly returned to London before moving again to her husband's native home of Sweden this time. And that move inspired her sixth cookbook, The Little Swedish Kitchen and the accompanying TV series. We spoke to Rachel from her home in Stockholm to explore how blending cultural influences in the home, simple food and gathering of friends, even in the coldest of temperatures, can be perfect ingredients for nourishing the soul. This is the Ochre House of Tales podcast and we're on a journey to meet inspirational guests to explore our love affair with living well and how relationships with the home are as unique as the people and their passions. So sit back, relax, and feel perfectly at home with our guest, Rachel Koo. Rachel, thank you for inviting us to chat to you from your home in Stockholm. And I know that you haven't always been in Stockholm. I know you also have spent time in France. And I just loved the idea that, I think it was 2006, you just decided to sort of pick up sticks and move to France, which I'm kind of in my head, I've got Emily in Paris. I don't know if it's Rachel in Paris. <laughs> but can you, okay, um, my life was very, very different to Emily in Paris. <laughs> so basically, I was working in London, I'd studied at art college in London, I graduated, ended up working in fashion PR marketing, wasn't really my thing. 
I I really, when I graduated from art college, I wanted to do food styling, but I couldn't find a paid job because all the assisting jobs were, oh, you work for free for experience. And I couldn't afford that because everybody knows London is expensive. So um, I did this PR fashion marketing job and for a couple of years, that was great. But then I felt like, oh, I'm hitting my mid twenties. I'm having a midlife crisis. I need to move countries and change my life. And so I decided just to move to Paris and study patisserie with the idea that having more like uh, practical knowledge would help me get into food styling. Cause I'd spoken to a few food stylists. They said, well, go work in a restaurant or go to culinary school. And I thought, well, why do culinary school in London when I could do it in Paris and learn French as well? So me being ever so practical, I was like, I'll move countries, learn French. And if the food styling thing didn't work out, then I would work in the city as a, you know, trilingual secretary because I speak German. So um, it would be English, German and French. So that was my plan B. So that's how I ended up in Paris. I had saved up some money to study at culinary school, but I didn't have any money to actually live in Paris. So I got a job as like an au pair nanny for a French family and or they were French Scottish. And so I was fortunate I would kind of part time look after the kids. I ended up cooking for the whole family because I enjoyed that part. And they had a really small kind of bedsit uh, for their au pair nanny Um And I'd get like 80 euros a week, like pocket money for working for them. So that kind of covered like my basics. I had somewhere to live. I had Mm. like some pocket money and I could at the same time study. So that was the way I made it work because otherwise it wouldn't have been feasible. So I actually stayed with the family quite a long time. And then I got really lucky, a friend of a friend was moving to New York for a while and she sublet her apartment to me. And so that was kind of like my first proper like place. I mean, it was only 21 square meters. Um, so it wasn't big, but I previously lived in 15 square meters. So that was like extra, you know, six square meters. <laughs> I felt I was like, oh my goodness, I'm moving into a palace. But I, you know, it was run down. It was like moldy in the ceiling, falling apart. <laughs> And this was actually the bed set I ended up filming the Little Paris Kitchen in. Ah, because I know the French have great markets and everything. Did you go and get things from there to sort of make it your own? Or what was your kind of approach? I know I've read lots about how brilliantly you make a small space work, but I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, how you changed that and how you turned it into something that was actually good enough to film as well. I didn't have much money. So buying big pieces of furniture was out of the question. I bought a kitchen cabinet you'd normally fit a kitchen with, a um, really tall one, so I could put my fridge in the cabinet and my KitchenAid, like my kitchen mixer, all in that cabinet. And that cabinet could stand in the living space because my kitchen was so small. And so I had to find a way of storing all my kitchen equipment in the living space, which was also my bedroom, but without it being like, oh, I'm going to bed in the kitchen, going to sleep in the kitchen, which was like, you know, I also had like this kind of kitchen island on wheels. And it had, I mean, I was living, literally, I was living in between kitchen, cookbooks, equipment, everything, Mm. but I had to find a way of kind of hiding it. And then I mixed it up were smaller bits I'd find at, they have this thing called vide crenier, which right. literally means when people empty out their attics. And it's usually during the like spring, summer months when the weather's nice. Neighbourhoods, like everybody like takes the bits oh, out of their fun. attic and sells it on the street. And then you can haggle. 
and I loved haggling, even though, you know, I wasn't always the best, but um, that was the fun of it. You'd like, oh, I'm not going to pay, you know, two euros for five plates. I want them for one euro. And then you have to kind of live with it if you don't get your deal. So, yeah. So did you mix and match then? Did you have that kind of thing going on with all your sort of tableware that it was just quite characterful and very kind of French and bits and pieces? That sounds lovely. Yeah, lots of bits and pieces. And I kind of carried that philosophy, which I still have today, is nothing's precious. You know, if I buy beautiful plates, I don't want to stick them in the cupboard. I want to use them every day. And if they break, okay, it's sad that they're broken, but that means I could buy a new plate. So so, um, I kind of want to use them every day and enjoy that beautiful plate every day rather than like yeah. my parents have like these special occasion plates, but they never, they come out once a year. So I'm kind of like, well, just use it all the time. And then you get the pleasure out of that plate all the time. Just because somebody thinks, oh, you've got a small kitchen. You can't do anything with it. I'm like, oh, I have a small kitchen. Okay, that's what I have. What can I do? What's the best I can do out of it? Mm. And did it take some sort of convincing of the French to come and eat in your kitchen? Because obviously they, the, the whole word restaurant has a French origin and they actually mm. came up with the whole idea of a restaurant. So that's quite interesting as an outsider, if you like. You've, you've come in and you've, you know, were your first diners actually French? Or, you know, how long did it take for it to really take off? So interestingly enough, like moving to Paris as a foreigner, it's really hard to make French friends. It's very easy to make friends who are from abroad because we're all lonely and we're looking for friends. So I had a lot of foreign friends who were, yeah, I want to come round. And at that point, this was like 2009, 2010, you know, pop-ups were a new thing in Paris Mm -hmm. they weren't like nowadays everybody knows what a pop-up is no big Mm. deal you know um so you kind of have to explain a little bit yeah you're coming you know you're coming to eat at my place and uh you know it's not a fancy restaurant it's just a table for two so it took some convincing and then with the French um initially they were mainly my friends Mm-hmm. And they were all like, how do you cook in such a small space? And you're cooking like a three-course meal. So they were really impressed. And actually, they were very kind because they would say, you know, it's not like how my grandma would cook it, but I can taste some of what my the flavours of what my grandma would do. Mm. Because my approach to French food is not traditional French. I'm not saying this is the recipe that all French cook and it's so authentic. Mm. French, the French food I do or the cooking I do is like my inspiration and how I've experienced, you know, France as an immigrant. Yeah. Also, now I live in Sweden. I also wrote a cookbook about Swedish food. So it's my experience as an immigrant in Sweden. Mm. So it's always kind of taking on my angle because I really believe there's so many cookbooks already out there with great French recipes. Yeah. You don't want to hear another like... This is a classic uh, coq au vin yeah. recipe. I actually do a coq au vin, like a barbecue style on a yeah. on a stick, almost like how in Malaysia you do satay, you know, the chicken on the stick with the peanut sauce and it's grilled. Yeah. I like to mix it up. So French people were very kind. But when I first moved to Paris and I worked for the French family, the French grandma would come round and eat and I would oh, cook no. for her. <laughs> so cooking for a French grandma was yeah. quite... Um, quite testing she wouldn't compliment it she would just say um 
not bad for an English person. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like she would eat it. She would eat it. So, so that, I took sign. that as a compliment. That's a good know. sign. Although people do argue now that in many ways the English restaurant scene is more vibrant than Paris. I mean, I don't know if you have an opinion on that. Definitely. I would say so. Actually, when I left Paris in about 2014... One of the biggest French food critics who worked at that point at Le Figaro, he said that London had a more dynamic food scene than yeah. Paris. And and I think to some extent that is true just because the competition is so fierce, the innovation, and the UK doesn't have that rich history in the mm. same way France does. I mean, the mm. UK obviously has a history in food, but the French are very connected to their history and very reluctant to let go of it. And actually, it's only recently, I'd say in the last couple of years, there's been a bit more movement. But interestingly enough, it's mainly coming from a younger generation who either from France, gone abroad, come back to Paris, or uh-huh. they're immigrants who've moved to Paris from another country. So it's really yeah. got that outside perspective. I think that's what we have to thank, basically, all the different immigrants that have come to London, which is what has made it so rich and, and that we didn't really have a, as you say, such a kind of strong tradition It that to be particularly proud of, like, overboiled potatoes or whatever we did so well <laughs> in England. Rachel cherishes her upbringing and her childhood memories, a unique blend of international flavours and influences, evident in her cuisine and her family home. From English Sunday dinners, Bavarian and Asian dishes and a teenage bedroom filled with nods to her love of art and music and elements that, if only now, would be the height of cool. Fascinating that your parents are both immigrants because there is obviously something to be said for that work ethic that happens when you have to start afresh in another country. But I just wondered what you remember sort of growing up with them as a child what were your homes like growing up? Was, were either of them really good chefs or what was the kind of culture like in the home? My mum was like a stay-at-home mum until I was like in my teens. And up to the age of 12, I was in Bromley, Kent. It was strange because in the 80s, I was a bit of a novelty, like being a mixed yeah. kid. There weren't so yeah. many mixed kids at at school I was like I think there was one other mixed kid at school she was like Scottish Filipino and that was it and there was one kid from the Caribbean and we were the only only kids from somewhere different and so my best friend who was my next door neighbor she would have chips and chicken nuggets for dinner and I would be so jealous because I would have to eat beef rendang curry and stir fry and chicken porridge and yeah. or like chick, uh, schnitzel. I mean, Sunday we always had a roast. That was yeah. very important. We always had a roast. But otherwise yeah. it was like all these international flavours mm. and I all I wanted was chicken nuggets and chips. <laughs> what was your like teenage bedroom like? I don't know. Can you remember? Okay, so my teenage years was in a tiny village in Bavaria. So I lived in the countryside in the middle of nowhere. um, And we rented a home and it was a semi-detached house and everything was white. And I had a bed, a single bed with a scalloped pink headboard, which now is totally in fashion. (laughs) Like... (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, scalloped edges, like, you know, the, um, yeah. it's so in fashion. Whereas when I was a teenager, I was like, oh, this is like, you know. Um, and I didn't have like loads of posters up. I was more like, I didn't have boy bands up. I was more into art. I was really into painting mm, okay. and music. But my parents were really strict on what I could put on the walls because it was a rented accommodation. Mm-hmm. So I had to be kind of careful um, what I put. So it was a very simply decorated house. We, mm. like, my parents were, like, very frugal. I think that's the word. Mm-hmm. They were, like, very, I think, if you come from a background where you don't have much, you you tend to be very careful how you spend your money. And my mum would mm-hmm. always be repairing things. So, like, my parents still have a microwave, which is, like, 40 years old, <laughs> like, you know, it's still... <laughs> She's ahead of her time, right? This is how we're all going to have to live soon. So that's that's that yeah. kind of make-do amend um, philosophy has come back and needs to come back. So that's quite interesting. And do you think you've carried some of that with you when you approach things in your home? Definitely. So I have a pile of all these broken plates. <laughs> I don't know what you call the Japanese art where they... Kintsugi, they... I just did yes. it myself, yeah. Oh, did you? With the yeah. gold, um, yeah. like the gold paint and, the, and it looks so beautiful. Yeah. But I have a pile I, I one day want to do, <laughs> but, you know, it's just like it's just growing. And, and you moved to Sweden. I think you've now been in Sweden. Um, you married a Swede who's, I think, also a foodie. He likes food, but thank yeah. goodness he's not a chef. No, okay, right. <laughs> Is it a new home for both of you? And did you kind of set about creating that feeling of focus being on the kitchen? We moved into our current house end of 2018, I believe. And we spent a year just not doing anything. We didn't renovate because there's a lot of people like move in and renovate straight away. And actually, we took a year just to have a feel for the house. Mm-hmm. and to see how we use the house, and especially the kitchen. I think this is something when I always like talk to people who are planning on doing their kitchen is think about how do you move around your kitchen? What do you use the most? What like uh, What is it used for? Are you cooking with something the most? Do you, do you always have coffee? Do you make toast in the morning? Like, so mm-hmm. there are lots of practical things because people always think about the aesthetics, but like with my design background, I'm always thinking – the functionality is really important, especially in the kitchen, that the functionality works really well, especially the flow. But most of all, it has to work hard. It's a practical kitchen. I mean, we have we have marble surfaces, which have a few scratches on. <laughs> Some people are yeah. like, oh, I've got scratches on my marble surface. But I'm like, it's being used. So I'm yeah. more like, it is the way it is. But um, I always tell people, have a feel and and write down how you use your kitchen and mm. and keep that in mind when you design the kitchen especially when it comes to kitchen gadgets like i always say get them stuck away stick them in a cupboard <laughs> right okay have you got kind of a favorite thing like a favorite platter or something that you just if you had to say some one thing from your kitchen you'd grab that okay god it's like it's hard because i'm trying to be less precious about things and like Okay. Okay, if it goes, it goes. Um, and especially because I've got two small kids, things get broken a lot. I bought these beautiful glasses in Japan, like uh, hand-blown, you know, drinking mm. glasses for water. Mm. And I'm like, I want to use them all the time. I bought six. We only have three left. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So now I'm like, I just go to the charity shop and buy these odd 
like <laughs> second-hand glasses. But then I don't like I don't feel if it breaks, I'm like, oh, no big deal. So yeah, so I kind of switching things around. I mean, I have got some lovely vintage Swedish plates. Okay. Um, which have really nice kind of quite graphic prints. So like apple and fruit, and it's um I think it's like sixties if I'm nice. right. Okay. So um, they're really lovely. I've broken a few already, <laughs> <laughs> chipped a few, but you know, like I at least I've had that pleasure every day to like when I eat my breakfast. It's like oh, I've got a beautiful plate to put it on. That means like every morning when you have your slice of toast and jam, you get that small pleasure of enjoying it from a nice plate rather yeah. than something quite Plain. dull. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Swedish interior design is all about keeping it simple feeding on a paired back aesthetic and white walls something that slowly Rachel is embracing adopting a more curated approach to the objects that fill her home despite this she can't help injecting a touch of Parisian flavour and quintessential British colour especially into her most favourite of spaces which is naturally the kitchen how do you feel like your kitchen in Stockholm differs from, say, if you've had homes in London? How does it differ? So I think, first of all, the kitchen we have in Stockholm is not very Swedish because the Swedish issue, if you go on to like a, um, their version of like when you're buying a house, you'll see lots of greys and whites, maybe a black, but we have a, a, a dark green, kind of a British racer green um, kitchen, which is a Shaker-style yeah. kitchen with wooden cabinetry. And we found mm. this really amazing Swedish, small Swedish company who make it from Swedish wood. It's handmade. It's hand-painted in linseed oil paint. Oh, lovely. Which yeah. you can see the brush marks. It's really mm. uneven. <laughs> so, but that means you could sand it down and you could repaint it in any colour you wanted to if, mm. if you don't like that green. Um, so it's not particularly Swedish. I do think I have got a little bit better at curating. I used to put everything out. I really like, I put all my, it was real hodgepodge of every, all my things I collected all out on display. And now I mm. kind of do a little less, like a yeah. little bit more minimalist. Um, so a bit more subdued maybe, but otherwise I kind of still have that little French. I was going to say, yeah. French touch with like a little the, bit of Parisian. vintage. Yeah. Okay. So it's things like that. So do you have a lot of people over still or are you so busy now with filming and all the other things you do? Or do you try and make sure you keep up with that home entertaining? So actually what was interesting in Sweden during the pandemic, because we didn't have a like a, an official lockdown like you did, mm. uh, everybody was meeting outside. Like right. you would go like, and that's pretty much Swedish culture. Like in the winter, everybody goes like, you go grill hot dogs outside and um, last year, because the water had frozen between the islands, because, you know, Stockholm is lots of, it's like an archipelago, lots of little islands. So yep. the water had frozen. So there was loads of ice everywhere and everybody would like take their like grill and go and their chairs and grill hot dogs outside and meet their friends outside. And um, nice. so it was quite, it was really, the entertaining didn't take place in the home. It took place outside. So even this year for um, Boxing Day, 
normally we host or our extended family mm-hmm. and people didn't feel comfortable meeting inside. So we did, you know, it was minus temperatures. Everybody came in their ski suits. <laughs> wow. <laughs> we had like, you know, we had like a couple of fires out. We made a big goulash soup. And then I did a hot chocolate pudding with hot custard for dessert. Really simple food. Mm. But that's what I always say about entertaining. It doesn't need to be some Michelin starred food. It could just be the fact you're bringing people together mm-hmm. and adding meaning to that gathering. There's this amazing uh, writer called Priya Parker, and okay. she talks about how, as humans, we need this connection and when we gather, and how you can mm. give that more meaning and how to do that. So I love bringing mm. people together, and that was one of the reasons I started cooking because I like that human connection and Mm. with the pop-ups you see how people interact and you can bring people together so I love um I love entertaining the one person I would really love to cook for who was hugely influential into like my food or or, like the what what I think of food is my Austrian grandma from my Mm -hmm. mother's side um, I just remember as a kid, she had a like small kitchen and I'd sit at her table, watch her making her own strudel dough or her like dumplings or whatever. And she really, food was a way, she was, she grew up from a very poor household and, you know, mm-hmm. after the war and not having much, but food was a way of showing her love and generosity and the way yeah. she instilled that within her food. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would give you a heart attack, but... <laughs> It's it's um and I think that sharing your love and wanting to nourish someone uh, in a good way is something I really feel strongly about and why I love food is that mm. you have this gift you can give to someone mm. um and so I'd love to cook for my grandma because my grandma she passed away before I kind of made it into the food world um. Yeah. And I would love to kind of host a dinner with my grandma, my mum, my aunts, all the kind of women in the three generations kind of thing. Yeah, um, that would be fantastic. That would be amazing. But I know what my grandma would say, because she would always say this <laughs> with my aunt or my mum whenever they cooked. It's got not got enough butter in it. <laughs> she was like, <laughs> butter makes everything better, which I say now anyway. But she was like, needs more butter. <laughs> Sweden may be blessed with cool, crisp landscapes, but in the winter months, daylight is in short supply. Look around any Scandi home, including Rachel's, and you'll spot candles on the dining tables, side tables, kitchen worktops. In fact, every corner of the house, taking up the baton when the sun goes down to brighten up the short days and create a sense of coziness and charm. I love the Nordic countries, like I've visited a few and I think they've got so many things right about the way we live. But the one thing that I'm just not sure if I could handle is the lack of light. And I know we have a bit of a lack of light in England, but I just wondered how you kind of brighten up breakfast or dinner in Sweden when you have those short days. Yeah, it's funny when you say the lack of light in the UK. So I go to the UK now in February. It's like, oh my goodness, it's like springtime. Oh, yes, it's like going on holiday. It's like yeah. the Brits go to the Mediterranean. <laughs> From Sweden, you go to the UK. <laughs> so um, I um, the lack of light is really, really hard. And I struggled with that a lot at the beginning when I moved to, to Sweden. But what I do see here in Sweden is they really just embrace it. 
they're like, okay, it is dark, yeah. it is cold. We just have to put on better clothes and we go out. So even in the winter, you will go out and like uh, mm. barbecue and you mm. go out and take, like they have this um, blueberry soup, which is a blueberry soup. It's like, a, imagine a Ooh. smoothie, um, but a bit thicker and they warm it up and you have it in a thermos flask and you go out for the day, whether you're going ice skating or cross-country skiing. So they're very outdoorsy and they just embrace yeah. that outside the cold. So and when healthy. it comes to the dark, it's super healthy. We're like, but mm. otherwise you'd just be inside. So mm. it's like with my kids at nursery, they just like, even at minus 10, they're outside. They like they say there's yeah. no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothes. So you just have to wear a lot of layers. <laughs> and then when it comes to like the darkness, they really love their candles. Oh, yeah. So you know when you go to IKEA and they have the whole big mountain of candles. That's why they have That's the mountain right. of candles because the Swedes always stock up. And for breakfast, you light a candle. You oh, lunch, you light a candle. Dinner, you light a candle. It's not a romantic situation. You just light the candle because it's cozy. Yeah. Um, and they have a word called Fredagsmus, which means Friday coziness. So the tradition on Friday is to do Friday coziness where you put on some comfortable clothes after you've come from work. You have a cozy dinner. Maybe you watch a movie together and you make it really cozy and it's very re- relaxed. Um, I love and that. And you embrace that coziness. And even though it's cold and dark outside, you just embrace it. So I think it's more mm. about embracing it and like okay this is the way it is but let's make the Mm. most of it rather than oh my goodness it's dark and it's awful tell me a little bit about uh fika so this is like a what's that that sort of is that sort of a ritual so fika that there's no direct translation for the word but it it means Mm. to like take the time to have coffee and a bun or like a sweet treat so in sweden the tradition is uh, cinnamon buns or cardamom buns um, and they love their coffee here like they're right. they are not tea drinkers they are coffee drinkers uh. <laughs> and I think actually Sweden after Norway is the second highest coffee uh, consumer per person in the world so they drink uh. a lot a lot of coffee and fika is like round about like 10 30 11 or in the afternoon 2 mm-hmm. where you would go if you're at work you would go have a fika with your work colleagues or for me for you know being freelance when I first moved to Stockholm it was like uh instead of saying do you want to go for a drink it's like do you want to go for fika let I don't know you but yeah. let's go for fika it was kind yeah. of a casual meetup kind of thing so um, it's just a lovely tradition. I mean, who doesn't like a sweet treat? <laughs> you know, with my coffee. <laughs> do you feel like you've sort of fully adopted the Swedish way of life now or do you still carry with you some Austrian things that you still do and cook and some Malaysian? Do you feel like you're very much still carrying your heritage with you in, in the way you live? I mean, I don't think I could ever shake it off. It's just so ingrained, you know, like having lived in so many different countries, like the UK, Germany, France, now Sweden, having the kind of different backgrounds in the food and traveling. um, I definitely feel British in that sense. Like I don't feel like I would ever, even though I speak Swedish, I mean, my Mm -hmm. Swedish is okay. Nothing to brag about, but um, 
I yeah, I don't think I don't think I've I would you I'd ever be able to take that out of me. I still have culture. My cultural reference points are still mainly British, even when I was oh, living in okay. Paris. Like um, you know, having that cup of tea, yeah, um, listening to British radio. Although sometimes I listen to French radio. Um, uh, yeah, they're just too many things. Like I, I. It's where your childhood was, you know. Mm. I think, and my, my yeah. most of my childhood was in the UK, so I still feel deeply rooted and connected to that. Mm. Um, even though I've added all these different flavors, and you know, there's Swedish flavors coming in now, but my kids know that I'm I'm definitely not Swedish. Thank you so much for uh, talking to me today. I can't wait to see your home finished um, and see what you've done <laughs> with all the colours and see how like how it's mixed up Swedish, Parisian um, and all sorts. Well, you'll, you'll be able to see that all on my Instagram. I'll be sharing that when I get the photos done. So uh, don't worry about that. <laughs> Great. I'll keep my eyes peeled. Thank you for your time today, Rachel. Thank you. That's it for this episode five of the House of Tales podcast by Oka. In episode six, we explore tales of artistry with Italian tastemaker Martina Mondadori, founder of the Interiors Bible, Cabana. She joins us to share tales of how she and her partner, Ashley Hicks, merged their design talents to create a dreamy new home in Milan. Also, how interiors can provide a canvas for imagination and originality. The secrets to creating a powerful, unique aesthetic with worldly, eclectic panache. And how she brought a little bit of England to Italy. Be sure to subscribe to the Ochre House of Tales podcast wherever you listen. This episode was hosted by me, Bethan Ryder, and featured Rachel Koo. Recording, production and audio post was by Talori with executive producers Mike Raczynski and Mark Baker. Music direction was by Andy Guthrie.